Therefore we will not fear. Though the earth give way and the mountains fall into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam and the mountains quake with surging, there is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy place where the Most High dwells. God is within her. She will not fall. God will help her at the break of day. Nations are in an uproar. Kingdoms fall. He lifts the voice. The earth melts. The Lord Almighty is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Let's, let's pray this morning, and then we'll look into God's Word. Lord, uh, thank you for uh, the privilege today to be here, to encourage one another. Um, Lord, to give you praise and honor and glory for who you are, for what you have done, for what you're doing in our lives. Lord, thank you for um, the truth of Psalm 46, that no matter what happens in our world, You are our refuge and strength. Even in times of chaos, even in times of war, as is happening in Ukraine, Lord, we pray for the church there and the believers there and the people there. And Lord, would you just give them grace and strength to face unbelievably challenging times. And Lord, we thank you that as we gather here this morning that our hope is not found in... Uh, our uh, country or our military, uh, Lord, our hope is found in you and you alone. And so we echo that today, and we thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, if you are 30 years or older here this morning, and I'm looking around, and almost all of you are, with a couple of exceptions... You remember where you were 21 years ago today. It was a a crisp fall morning, and we were all getting into our rhythm and routine for the fall. Back to school, back to work, back into our patterns of life. And then our world changed, and let me just, as we don't need reminded what happened, but let me read you as a reminder what happened on that day 21 years ago? On September 11, 2001, at 8.45, on a clear Tuesday morning, an American Airlines Boeing 767, loaded with 20,000 gallons of jet fuel, crashed into the North Tower of the World Trade Center in New York City. The impact left a gaping, burning hole near the 80th floor of the 110-story skyscraper, instantly killing hundreds of people and trapping hundreds more in higher floors. Eighteen minutes later, a second Boeing Boeing 767, United Airlines Flight 175, appeared out of the sky, turned sharply toward the World Trade Center, and sliced into the South Tower near the 60th floor. As millions watched the events unfolding in New York City, American Airlines Flight 77 circled over downtown Washington, D.C. before crashing into the west side of the Pentagon at 9.45. Meanwhile, a fourth California-bound plane, United Flight 93, was hijacked about 40 minutes after leaving Newark Liberty International Airport in New Jersey. Knowing that the aircraft was not returning to an airport as the hijackers claimed, a group of passengers led by Wheaton College graduate Todd Beamer 
planned an insurrection, and those people bravely stormed the cockpit as Todd Beamer's famous last words, let's roll, they stormed the cockpit, and Flight 93 crashed into a rural field near Shanksville in western Pennsylvania at 10.10 a.m. And in 90 minutes' time, our world changed, and we realized that America was under attack. The feelings of being scared and being fearful and being vulnerable um, came into all of our lives. This morning, we want to look at our study of life of David, and what I want to do is look at a story from 1 Samuel chapter 30 that has a, a, a huge impact on David's life, and uh, we're going to look at how to respond in times of crisis, how to respond in times of crisis. Jesus' prophetic words, John sixteen thirty three: in this world you will have trouble, but then he says, but take heart, I've overcome the world. And so we want to think about how to respond in times of crisis. And if you have your Bibles, turn to 1 Samuel chapter 30, because we want to look at David's response to an incredibly difficult time in his life. I would suggest a time that was very similar, the impact of what we experienced 21 years ago. And we want to see how David responded and use that as a model, a template for how we need to respond when crisis comes. Someone has once said we're either uh, going into a crisis in the middle of a crisis or coming out of one, and that kind of describes a, a life in a fallen world. And so how are we going to respond when there's uh, another national crisis or a family crisis or an individual crisis? And how David responded is going to give us some uh, good guidance this morning how to respond in time of crisis. So let me give a little context to 1 Samuel chapter 30. Uh, we've been looking at the life of David. Uh, this is uh, sermon number nine on David's life. But David is a fugitive. He's on the run from King Saul who wants to kill David. And David has been on the run for 10 years. And when we come to 1 Samuel chapter 27, we discover that David finally decides to go into Philistine territory uh, because he knows that, that King Saul won't pursue him there. And so David goes into Philistine territory, and he, he kind of makes a pact with the, the king of uh, Achish, or with Achish, uh, who is the Philistine king there. And uh, David becomes one of the Philistines. And David uh, fights with the Philistines. And he, he's in Philistine territory for 16 months. But as we come to uh, chapter 29, we discover that uh, Achish now is planning on attacking the Israelites. And he says to David, um, I want you to be my armor bearer. And so they're ready to go attack the Israelites. And all of a sudden, uh, the Philistine army sees David and his men. And they're like, no way we're going with them. This, this is the guy that killed Goliath. This is our enemy. And so uh, the king Achish comes to David and sends his men, David and his men, back to Ziklag, which is the city where they were dwelling. And so rather than fighting, they, they are told to go back to Ziklag, and they're on their way back to Ziklag. It's an 80-mile walk, would take two or three days, 
And that's where we pick up the story uh, and the crisis that they find when they get to Ziklag. So let's uh, look at verse 1 and 2. Uh, here's the story. Here's the crisis. David and his men reached Ziklag on the third day. Now the Amalekites had raided the Negev and Ziklag. They had attacked Ziklag and burned it and had taken captive the women and everyone else in it, both young and old. They killed none of them, but carried them off as they went their way. Now think about the the impact of that. David, and he has a band of 600 men that he's uh, traveling with, fighting with. Uh, They make this three-day walk back to Ziklag, and when they get there, they discover that the entire city's been burned, that the Amalekites have come and uh, scorched earth policy, have burned everything. David, who attacked the Amalekites uh, not that long ago, uh, you live by the sword, die by the sword. This is payback time. Payback time for David, payback time for his men. So not only did they burn the city, but it says that they kidnap everybody in Ziklag. So they get there, all their possessions are gone, their homes are gone, but more importantly, their families are gone. Their wives have been taken captive. Their children have been taken captive. And this would have easily been about uh, 3,000 people. There were 600 men in David's uh, band of brothers that he was fighting with. Um, They had wives. That would be another 600. If they had a couple children each, we're talking easily uh, three to 4,000 people that have been kidnapped and taken captive by the Amalekites. Notice how David and his men respond to that crisis. And the third point of our outline is the crying the crying, look at it in verse 3. When David and his men reached Ziklag, they found it destroyed by fire, their wives and sons and daughters taken captive. So David and his men wept aloud until they had no more strength to weep. We've all shed a lot of tears in our lifetime, but I don't know if I've ever cried to, to, to this extent. To, to, to cry and be in so much emotional pain that you're crying and you're crying and there are no more tears to come. And that's what David and his men were experiencing. They, they cried and wept until they had no strength left to weep. David's two wives have been captured, Ahinoam of Jezreel and Abigail, the widow of Nabal of Carmel. David faces another crisis here, verse 6. David was greatly distressed because the men were talking of stoning him. Okay, let's add a little more crisis in David's life. Not only are his his wives and his children have been taken captive, the city's been destroyed, but now his band of men, um, and this is just human nature, uh, they're looking for someone to blame. And who's the easiest person to blame when, uh, uh, in crisis, when things are going south? You blame the leader, don't you? And, and, and so there's this plan that they begin to talk, well, let's kill and stone David. David was greatly distressed because they were talking of stoning him. Each one was bitter in spirit because of his sons and daughters. But David found strength in the Lord his God. 
So here's David. The city's been burned. His family's been carried away captive. And his friends are talking about killing him. I'd say that would qualify for a crisis. And what does David do? And how does he handle that? And and so we're going to continue through the text here. Let's look at the confirmation. Uh, Beginning in verse 7, Then David said to Abathar, the priest, the son of Ahimelech, Bring me the ephod. Now, this will sound very strange to us, but you have to understand um, the Old Testament and some of its uh, history and how it works. So the ephod was like an um, outer jacket or a vest that the high priest wore. It had a couple pockets in it, and uh, it had some um, like stones in those pockets, two of them. Uh, Strange words here, names. One was called the Urim, the other was called the Thummim. And you see this a couple times in the Old Testament, that after a time of prayer, the high priest would shake the ephod, and the Thummim stood for yes, the other stone, the Urim, stood for no, and God would cause the proper stone to fall out, and that would give guidance to what a person was looking for as far as guidance in a decision. And so, um, very similar to casting lots in the, in the New Testament. They just, they trusted God with a neutral process. And so here it is. David says, bring the ephod. In other words, I, I need direction from God. I need some guidance here. And Abathar brought it to him, and David inquired of the Lord. Two questions. Should I pursue this raiding party, the Amalekites, Question number two, will I overtake them? Pursue them, he answered. You will certainly overtake them and succeed in the rescue. And so David looks for uh, some guidance, some wisdom from God, from the high priest. And the answer is, yes, I want you to pursue them. And yes, you will overtake them. And so that leads us to uh, the conquest. And let's just read the the storyline here, and I need to read a lot of the text here for us to get the, the rest of the story. But here it is in verse 9. David and the 600 men with him came to the Besor Valley, where some stayed behind. 200 of them were too exhausted to cross the valley, but David and the other 400 men continued the pursuit. They, fought in, they found an Egyptian in a field And brought him to David. They gave him water to drink and food to eat, part of a cake of pressed figs and two cakes of raisins. He ate and was revived, for he had not eaten any food or drunk any water for three days and three nights. David asked him, who do you belong to and where do you come from? He said, I am an Egyptian, the slave of an Amalekite. My master abandoned me when I became ill three days ago. We raided the Negev of the Carathites, some territory belonging to Judah, and the Negev of Caleb, and we burdened Ziklag. That got David's attention. David asked him, can you lead me down to this raiding party? Can you show me where these Amalekites are that came and burned and attacked Ziklag? And he answered, swear to me before God that you will not kill me or hand me over to my master. And I will take you down to them. He makes a deal with David. He led David down, and there they were, scattered over the countryside. Here are the Amalekites now. They're eating and drinking and reveling because of the great amount of plunder they had taken 
from the land of the Philistines and from Judah. They're celebrating. They're having a party. David fought them from dusk until the evening of the next day, and none of them got away except 400 young men who rode off on camels and fled. David recovered everything the Amalekites had taken, including his two wives. Nothing was missing, young or old, boy or girl, plunder or anything else they had taken. David brought everything back. He took all the flocks and herds, and his men drove them ahead of the other livestock, saying, this is David's plunder. And so David asked, shall I pursue them? And uh, the high priest said, yes. And David and 400 of his men uh, are pursuing these uh, Amalekites that had attacked uh, Ziklag, had burned his city, had taken his family captive. And God in his providence brings them across the path of an Egyptian, a slave of one of the Amalekites, who knew exactly where the Amalekites were. And he led David and his men, and they go in and they conquer the Amalekites, and they recover everything that was taken from them. Well, that leads us to the end of the the text here. And the last uh, point in the outline is the uh, conflicting opinions. And so a little bit of a problem rose as as David and his men are coming back, uh, his 400 men who fought, and they're bringing back all the wives, and they're bringing back all their families, and all their possessions, and all the plunder that they recovered. There was two opinions here that were conflicting, and let's uh, look at them briefly, uh, beginning in verse 21. Then David came to the 200 men who had been too exhausted to follow him and who were left behind at the Besor Valley. They came out to meet David and the men with him. As David and his men approached, he asked them how they were. But all the evil men and troublemakers among David's followers said, because they did not go out with us, We will not share with them the plunder we recovered. However, each man may take his wife and children and go. And so the guys that fought said they can have their families back. But the the plunder, the resources, the goods that we recovered, they're not getting any of that. Because they sat back and rested while we were out there fighting and risking our lives to recover that. Now, notice how David responds to that. Verse 23, David says, No, my brothers, you must not do that with what the Lord has given us. He has protected us and delivered into our hands the raiding party that came against us. Who will listen to what you say? The share of the man who stayed with the supplies is to be the same as that of him who went down to the battle. All will share alike. And David made a statute and an ordinance for Israel from that day to this. When David reached Ziklag, he sent some of the plunder to the elders of Judah, who were his friends, saying, here's a gift for you from the plunder of the Lord's enemies. So there was this conflict of opinions. And the guys that kind of sat back and were resting while the others were fighting were saying, hey, I don't think it's fair that... that, that, uh, or the guys that fought said, I don't think it's fair that the guys that sat back should get the plunder. And David says, no, we're giving it to everybody. This is God's gift to us. This is God's provision. David modeled grace 
and David modeled mercy. Well, that's a quick overview of 1 Samuel chapter 30. And uh, this morning, I want to take just 10 or 15 minutes to think about how we can use how David responded in crisis to when we face the next crisis. So how are we going to respond in times of crisis? The loss of a loved one, a financial crisis, a marriage crisis, a health crisis, a spiritual crisis, a child or grandchild that's not walking with God, a church crisis. How do we respond when crisis comes? And it will come. And so let's follow the model of David and how David responded. And hopefully that can be our template for walking through crisis in our lives. Here's here's the first thought. And here's what David did. Turn to your source of strength. And in times of crisis, we need to turn to our source of strength. When crisis comes... We can wallow in self-pity, or oftentimes we turn to things that will just anesthetize the pain that we're feeling. But what we really need to do, and what David did, and we find it here in verse 6, when his home is gone, his city is gone, his wife and children have been kidnapped, and they're thinking about killing him, the end of verse 6 says, But David found strength in his God. What does David do? He turns toward his source of strength. And his source of strength is God. Notice this is personal. It's his God. You have to have a personal relationship with him. And David turns to God as his source of strength in time of crisis. The Bible says he's only a a prayer away, isn't he? He never sleeps. He never slumbers. We can call out to God in time of crisis. I remember my friend uh, Benny, who's a missionary to to India. He's actually native Indian. And uh, he was talking about the country of India. And he says, well, when we're in trouble in India, we don't have a a 911 emergency number that we call. So he says, we rely on Psalm 91.1. And he quoted Psalm 91.1, which reads, whoever dwells in the shelter of the Most High will rest in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say of the Lord, he is my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. And so in times of crisis, um, we turn to our source of strength. And for you and I as believers in Jesus, our source of strength is, is God. Psalm 27, verses 1 through 3, the psalmist writes in that very familiar psalm, The Lord is my strength, or is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid when the wicked advance against me to devour me? And David goes on to describe another crisis in his life. And so we need to turn to our source of strength. What does that look like? Well, first of all, God himself and his character is our source of strength. And when we go through a crisis, we need to remind ourselves who God is 
and the attributes of God, and that God is a, a loving Father who will never allow anything to come into our lives without first passing through His hands and can use anything in our life for His glory and our good, our spiritual good, if we'll allow Him to. I think of that passage in Ephesians chapter 6. Our source of strength is uh, there, Paul writing from prison. He says, uh, Put on, be strong in the Lord and put on what the whole armor of God. And he describes the spiritual um, armor that we need to have in our lives. The helmet of salvation, the breastplate of righteousness, the belt of truth, our feet shod with the preparation of the gospel, and praying always. That's one thing crisis does, doesn't it? It improves our prayer life. Uh, we need to turn to our, 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 our faith and our trust in God. But to find strength in the Lord also means that we turn to our um, family and friends. I was thinking about earlier um, one of the uh, phone companies, I don't know if it was Sprint or AT&T, but they had a, a family and friends plan for your, for your phone that you could sign up for. Well, God has a family and friends plan, and in times of crisis, you better have some resources of some family, the family of God, and some friends that can help you and assist you in times of crisis. The one another phrases in the Bible. What do we do? We're to encourage one another. We're to pray with one another. We're to bear one another's burdens. On and on it goes. And uh, the value of being part of the body of Christ is is huge, but is especially when we're walking through crisis. We discovered that again, and we we you know you, you know this intellectually, but as we um, shared with many of you uh, six weeks ago, um, our one of our five grandsons um, went through open heart surgery, and um, that was a little bit of a of crisis in our in our family. And, um, uh, but I, how did we get through that? And, and there was a tremendous amount of, um, of faith and peace of God that uh, mom and dad experienced and grandpa and grandma as well. Uh, it, it was uh, the peace of God that comes into our life, but it was also uh, people that were uh, encouraging us and praying for us. And between our church family and our ministry at Maranatha, there were literally hundreds of people that prayed us through that process. So Liam just had his six-week follow-up checkup about two or three days ago. He's four years old, doing remarkably well. And yesterday he played in his first soccer game in his life and scored a goal, and he was so excited he had to call Grandma and tell Grandma that he scored a goal in his first soccer game. So, uh, But uh, our source of strength, it, it's God, and it is the family of God, and it is um, our friends that God brings into our life that will pray for us and encourage us through crisis time. Well, that's the first thing David did. He turned to a source of strength, but uh, he did something else. Uh, this, here's the second thing he did. Uh, we need to seek God's guidance and direction in times of crisis. We need to seek God's guidance and direction. And so where did David turn? David turned to the high priest, didn't he? David turned to the, the ephod that was going to give him some 
wisdom shall I pursue the Amalekites? And the answer came down, yes. Where do we turn for God's guidance and direction? Well, uh, we don't have uh, the ephod today, but we have the word of God. We have the completed revelation of scripture that gives us what? Guidance and wisdom. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not unto your own understanding, your own way of thinking, but what? Trust in God and he will what? Direct your paths. James 1, 5 says, if any of you lack wisdom, what should we do? We should ask of God who gives to all men generously. And so when we're in crisis, the second thing we need to do is we need to ask God for guidance and wisdom What is my next step in this crisis? I love the verse in 2 Chronicles chapter 20, verse 12. King Jehoshaphat and and the whole nation of God's people was under attack from all sides and from a huge uh, army. I think it was the Assyrian army. And they were in crisis. And in 2 Chronicles 20, 12, we read, King Jehoshaphat says, we don't know what to do, but our eyes are on you, Lord. I'm not sure how to respond, but I'm looking to God for guidance and for wisdom. And so the truths and the principles of God's word can help us and guide us and give us direction in times of crisis. I think God also um, gives us Uh, some wisdom and guidance through um, godly counselors. Proverbs 11, 14, there's safety in a multitude of counselors. And so as we uh, read God's word and and seek God's wisdom, God also has given us um, godly people, godly counselors that can help us navigate through times of crisis. Well, the third thing that David did then, turned to his source of strength, he, he sought God's guidance and direction, and God told him, pursue the Amalekites. Here's the third response. We need to trust and obey. Trust and obey. So what did David do after the, the high priest said, pursue the Amalekites? David could have said, well, let me think about that. A little bit. Let me pray about that some more. (laughs) That's not what David did. David realized what was at stake, and what was at stake was the lives of his family and the lives of uh, the families of his band of brothers. And so David, when he hears what God wants him to do, he immediately obeys. And we see that in the text. Uh, Verses 9 and and 10, David and the 600 men with him came where some stayed behind. Uh, 200 of them were too exhausted to cross the valley, but David and the other 400 continued the pursuit. They, they, They obeyed God's direction and God's wisdom. And that's the next step in times of crisis when God reveals to you, and he will, what the next step is. And when to take the step, which is just as important as what to do, then what's our response? We need to trust and obey. We can't live the Christian life based on our feelings and emotions, can we? 
because uh, there's uh, our, our emotions are not a good indicator of, of of truth sometimes. And so what we need to do is that even when we don't feel like it, we need to trust God and obey him based on the truth of his word. And so you heard the story of the, um, the husband who uh, on a Sunday morning um, was not getting out of bed for church and his wife um, wanted to go to church. And so um, his wife said, hey, well, you know, it's, it's, it's Sunday and, and you're not getting out of bed and, uh, you know, we need to go to church. And he said, well, you know, I'm, I'm, really, I'm really tired today. And actually, Sunday's the only day I have to sleep in. And you know what? There's, there's a couple people at that church that don't really like me, so I don't think I want to go today. And his wife said, well, let me give you three good reasons why you should go. She says, number one, you, you need the fellowship. And number two, you need to set a good example. And number three, you're the pastor of the church. So um, you really need to go. Can I say there are times when we don't feel like doing what we need to do? Quite frankly, a dreary morning like this, it would have been very easy just to stay at home and, 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 and sleep in, and we get very, very busy in our lives. Uh, but God wants us to obey, doesn't he? Um, my first church, I was associate pastor at a church in Strongsville, Ohio, and this is back uh, a long, long time ago. But we had uh, we had activities going um, actually way way too many and uh, thirty five forty years ago there was a kind of a thinking of the you know the more nights you were involved with the church the more spiritual you are which is um, a lie of the devil but we were busy five or six nights um, uh, with different church activities and uh, every Thursday night um, the pastor and I and there was usually one other man from the church sometimes two would go out on Thursday night visitation. I don't think churches do this anymore. Most of them don't. Most of us don't like people showing up on a Thursday night, knocking at the door and popping in. Uh, but we did that every every Thursday night. And uh, I can remember so many nights where, like, man, I just was tired, especially in the wintertime. It was dark. I didn't want to go. didn't feel like going, but um, I, knew, <laughs> I knew I had to. But... Um, Anytime I felt like that, uh, and I followed and, and just did what I felt God wanted me to do, I, God ended up at the end of the night blessing. And something happened that night, a, a visit, an encouragement, and it just lifted, lifted my spirits. Well, the third step uh, is to trust and obey. Here's the fourth one, and then we're done. How to respond in times of crisis. Number four, be a conduit of God's mercy and grace to other people. That once we're through the crisis, and God brought David and his men through this crisis in an incredible way. I mean, they, they recovered everyone and they recovered everything. Then we need to become a conduit of God's grace and mercy to other people. I don't know about you, but I kind of identify with the two... Uh, with the 400 men that went out and fought while the 200 rested. You know, in, in my mind, it's like, they don't deserve these spoils. I risked my life to get your wife back, your family back, but 
you know what? You just sat there. You don't deserve the spoils. That's, that would have been my mindset. David said, no. No, this, this was all God, and this was his provision to us, and this is his grace and mercy, and so we're going to share the spoils with everyone regardless whether they fought or not. And so we have to be very, very careful when we begin to evaluate situations and think, you know what, I don't think that's fair. Do we really want God to deal with us with what's fair? No, we've been recipients, what, of God's grace. God's grace is getting something that we don't deserve, which is salvation. We've been recipients of God's mercy, withholding from us what we do deserve, which is eternal punishment from God. And we've experienced his abundant grace and mercy in our life, and we need to be that channel of grace and mercy to others, even when it doesn't seem like it's fair. And David was that instrument of God's grace and mercy to others. The other thing that happens is when you go through a crisis, and when God delivers you through that crisis, you then become a conduit of opportunity of blessing other people with the experience that you've went through. And here's 2 Corinthians 1, 3, and 4. Paul writes, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all of our troubles. There's not a period there. There's a comma there. If there was a period there, that would be a great verse. God is a God of comfort who comforts us in trouble. But after the comma, it says, So that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves have received from God. And so when we go through the crisis, and when God brings us through, then we're prepared, what? To be a conduit of God's grace and mercy to other people who are maybe going through a similar crisis as we are. Something our middle son said to us, um, Josh and Julie, mom and dad of Liam, after he went through his open heart surgery, uh, Josh got connected with... um, a group that's uh, online of other parents whose um, children are facing heart surgeries. And he told me just a couple weeks ago, he says, Dad, I've had a lot of opportunity to share what we went through with Liam and how God brought us through and how we experienced the peace of God with other parents who are facing the same thing. And so God wants us to be a conduit of grace and mercy to others. Where do we go in times of crisis? And the crisis will come. We need to turn to our source of strength, and it's God and God alone. And we need to seek his guidance and wisdom through the truths and the principles of Scripture and through godly counselors. And then we need to trust and obey. And when God brings us through, He'll use you and your experience as a conduit, a channel of blessing to others. Let's pray together. Lord, we're so grateful that you have given us a roadmap in the Bible 
not only a roadmap for salvation of how to make sure that our sins are forgiven, that our eternal destiny is secure, but you've given us a roadmap for life. Lord, I pray that as we journey through life, And as we inevitably experience uh, the crises of life, Lord, may we remember David and his example. May we run to you as the source of strength. May we seek your wisdom through God's word and God's principles and godly counselors. And then, Lord, when we we do uh, find out your direction, Lord, give us the courage to obey. And Lord, when we come through that crisis, thank you for the promise that you want to use that crisis, not only in our lives, but in the lives of other people, to encourage them and to bless them. Lord, our hope and trust is in you and you alone, and we give you all the praise in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.